1: To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Stephen Benner. He's a distinguished fellow. He's part of the Foundation for Applied Molecular Evolution, It's a 501c3, that he started a number of years ago. We're going to talk about his work uh, in synthetic biology and uh, perhaps a bit of COVID. So, Steve, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Yeah, if you would, I know you stated it offline, but tell me about your foundation and uh, why you started it and what's
2: the focus of it at present. Right. Well, the Foundation for Applied Molecular Evolution is a 501c3 nonprofit where we do pretty much uh, research and development as we see opportunities and follow what interests us. So we are supported by lots of, of private donors, but also the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation and NASA. National Aeronautics and Space Administration, as well as the Department of Defense. So some of it is contract research, just like what you would do on academic campuses. But part of it is, is, is research that's a focus towards tech, what we call technology transfer or translational technology. So for example, one of the things we've done last year, just because we're involved in nucleic acid chemistry, is generated kits for uh, detecting coronavirus, both in uh, patient's uh, normal patient testing but also in what we call point of entry public space entry environment so we can let you know if you're about to walk into our building in 15 minutes whether or not you are an asymptomatic carrier so that's the broad spectrum of what we do is 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 huge we just have fun so part of what we do for NASA for example is to understand how to detect life on Mars or whether there's a potential for life on Venus. And that goes all the way towards, you know, trying to generate new compounds to diagnose and treat cancer. So it's it's quite a broad range. And uh, I guess the one unifying thing is that it's all interesting to us. And, uh, and uh, there's very little else, except that it is sort of at this joining between chemistry and biology, But it also includes some geology. So a lot of the work that we do, we're concerned about how life originated, and that's tied into planetary history and rocks and other kinds of things that you generally regard as Earth sciences.
1: Well, if we can, can we talk first about um, finding life on other planets, Mars and Venus? What kind of testing are you working on, and how does it look for life?
2: Yeah, sure, of course. Well, keep in mind that the life on Mars is not likely to – well, it actually has two choices. One is it can be – life that shares a common ancestry with life on Earth. So that's quite possible because a lot of rocks go back and forth between Earth and Mars as various meteors hit Mars and eject rocks that come to Earth or vice versa. So it is conceivable that life emerged in one place or the other and was transported and it was seeded. The other question is whether light, another possibility is that life emerged independently on Mars. And so if it did emerge independently on Mars, then there is uh, likely to be some chemical differences between the life that you know and the life that we would find on Mars. This creates a big problem for detecting it because if you look at the future of of Mars exploration, I mean, the Chinese say that they're going to be landing on Mars in 2033. Um, NASA may uh, be a little bit later, Elon Musk is saying a little bit earlier, but the facts are that once humans go to Mars, and as you remember from watching Matt Damon in that movie, you know, if they're discarding their poop into the environment, it's going to create a terrestrial background biology or biological chemistry that will make it much more difficult to find indigenous Martian life, or for that matter, even, and that's true, by the way, whether or not that Martian life originated on Mars itself or was transported from Earth. So so we're worried about what universal biosignatures are. And one of the things that is universal we think in biology is this concept of Darwinian evolution. Current theory holds that the only way that you can get organic material to have the properties that you value in life is by this process by which you have children. The children are in some sense different by mutation from you. And then the differences uh, arising from replication imperfections are themselves replicable. And once you have replication with error, where the errors are themselves replicable, you have the possibility that some errors are beneficial to your progeny in a particular environment. That is, of course, the concept of Darwinian evolution, which you perhaps have heard about, your readers have heard about in school but uh that requires information and so the questions are what are the universal information containing molecules now dna is a universal well on earth quite quite widespread informational molecule i mean but so is rna right the coronavirus that giving us all a lot of headache is the is the uh, is an rna molecule but those are not necessarily general. One of the ways we know that they are not general is we, because we are able to make alternative information molecules that can be replicated with errors and uh, evolve in response to changing environments. Which what do are you not- mean?
1: Like what? What are some examples?
2: Yeah. So, for example, DNA. You know, if you go to you know, remember your high school biology, has four nucleotide building blocks, four letters: G, A, C, and T, and If you go look at your own human genome, you'll see a long string of letters G-A-C-T-G-C-C or something like that. But those actually turn out not to be the only ways in which you can code information. In fact, even with the DNA scaffolding, one can imagine 12 different building blocks that would still be replicable like Watson and Crick said that they would be replicated Oh, it's now 60 or 70 years ago. And we've actually made those. We've actually are synthetic chemists, which means we can synthesize building blocks that are not found in natural DNA, at least not the natural DNA that we know of outside in in the trees and the animals outside of our, our window. But we can make eight more. And once we make eight more, we can make enzymes that copy them. And we can show that that system is also able to replicate with errors where the errors themselves are reproducible. In fact, we, we do the way we make anti-cancer drugs is by putting such systems. They're like DNA, but instead of having four letters, they have six, eight, 10, or 12. We put those systems under natural selection pressure in the laboratory to bind to cancer cells and kill them. So this is the kind of thing that uh, you could do. Now, the fact that I can make in the laboratory here on Earth DNA that does not look like your DNA or my DNA, that is DNA that has extra building blocks that also can evolve, that opens the possibility that an alien life form on Mars or Europa or uh, Vulcan will have a different structure of DNA than than what we have. And when you send missions to Mars to look for it, you've got to take that into consideration.
1: But when you're looking for life, you're looking for either DNA or RNA analogous structures, or are there other structures and other molecules you found that uh you know appear to be the basis
2: of life? Oh, absolutely. Well, not going too far into the weeds, you're looking for molecules that can hold information, which can be replicated with errors where the errors are themselves able to be replicated. This sort of sounds like infinite regression, and indeed it is, but not every molecule class will do that. So proteins, for example, I can make a protein, it has information in it, but there is no rule-based mechanism for proteins to make copies of themselves. And that means that proteins are not the genetic molecules. Now, they're not the informational molecules. Um, There may be proteins on Mars, there may be proteins on Europa, they may be proteins on Vulcan, but they're not the informational molecules.
1: including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now
2: back to the show. So you start doing a lot of chemistry to try to find alternatives for informational molecules. And one of the features of DNA that makes it useful and functioning as an informational Evolvable system. It's not that it has four different letters in the alphabet. We know we can make more. It's not that it has a particular sugar in the backbone, ribose, that's the R in RNA, or deoxyribose, that's the D in DNA. It's not that it has anything in particular in terms of the structures of these bases. But one thing is very important is that DNA has in its backbone a repeating negative charge. And that repeating negative charge turns out to be what is necessary for the molecule to be informational and evolvable. So the DNA, the last A, is acid, deoxyribonucleic acid. And of course, the A in RNA is the same thing, acid. And the reason why it's called an acid is because it has a repeating charge in the backbone. So when we go to Mars and look for life, if it does not have common ancestry, it does not share common ancestry with us, it's going to be different in any of a number of ways. But one thing, it will be the same is it will have a repeating backbone charge if it's going to support evolution. And by the way, that charge can also be a repeating positive charge. It can be, it just has to be a charge. And so a, a truly alien life form would have an informational molecule with has different building blocks. It would have different linking groups. But what we can be certain is that it will have a repeating backbone charge. And that in that that statement comes from a lot of work in synthetic biology with, where a lot of people, including ourselves, have made a large amount of effort to get molecules that don't have that repeating charge to store information. And the relative ease, and failed, we've failed, uh, but but the relative ease, if we can make a molecule with a repeating backbone charge, we actually have very little trouble getting uh, information storage replication with errors where the errors are themselves replicable, that is, the units of of evolution.
1: How far have you taken this? Have you been able to synthesize anything that kind of acts on its own as an independent life form? Or (laughs) where is the breaking point here?
2: Well, yeah, so NASA has this curious definition of, uh, and really, it's more than a definition. It's a theory of life. It's as a self-sustaining, there's that word self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. Now, the reason why I say that's a, theory as well as a definition is because what nasa really is saying is that they believe that for matter to self-organize itself and to give systems that have the uh, features that we value in living systems it must be chemical it must be capable of darwinian evolution and it must be self-sustaining, so that means that if you go out into the stars and do a Star Trek and you encounter Q of Star Trek, the next generation, who is not chemical, but who flips, you know, in and out of the continuum, NASA clearly would have to change its definition of life because it would have to change its theory of life, right? But for the time being, we haven't found Q and we haven't found anything that's not particularly chemical in this context. Um, but there so we have actually gotten things that are able to support darwinian evolution as chemical systems that are different from what well, they, they may
1: do. they may support it but they don't do they evolve to Yeah. anything functional so or no
2: I'm, yeah exactly uh, spot on i'm working around this concept of self sustaining now we don't do self sustaining and there's a couple reasons for it because what self sustaining means in this context is not that the stuff doesn't have to eat right you're you you certainly are uh, not self-sustaining in the sense that if you don't get some food within the next 72 hours you're going to be a very unhappy person
0: if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes
2: but what we do mean by self-sustaining is that you're able to go out and find your own food and that requires a level of performance that is beyond our capabilities either to develop to design or to uh, construct in the lab. Furthermore, we don't want to do self-sustaining because I'm not interested in getting anything that's able to escape from the laboratory and do its own food finding, right? So we basically keep these evolving systems under our control in the laboratory, but, you know, that's, they still have the other two parts. So, This is sort of like the song titled Two Out of Three Ain't Bad, which Darwinian evolution is chemical. And so we are able to evolve in the laboratory material that will actually, uh, say, evolve to bind to and kill a cancer cell. For example, that's the kind of thing that we do routinely here. And that doesn't require self-sustenance. That does require a graduate student, postdoc or staff scientist sitting there. Morning, noon, and night, and making sure that this system gets fed and uh, is able to evolve. I guess partially, yeah. Uh,
1: What's uh, in the lab, though, even though you've, you're restricting these systems in certain ways, like are you seeing any change of function, any evolution over time? Are you taking them through, let's say, thousands or millions of cycles of replication and
2: seeing yeah. any effects? That's right. So so you start off in this world when you say say you have a, a liver cancer cell. This is one that we've been working with. And let's say you want to have something that binds to the surface of the liver cancer cell. So what you can do is make yourself large numbers of different random molecules that are, say, DNA-like, but they're built from a six-letter genetic alphabet rather than a four-letter Genetic alphabet. Um, now you can pour these on top of the cancer cells, and very few of them will stick to the cancer cells at all. But you know, you wash away the ones that don't stick, and a few of them stick, maybe not so well. You recover them, and now you exploit their ability to do Darwinian evolution in steps. Right? You first exploit their ability to be replicated. So you take the molecules that bind, say, weakly to the cancer cells, you replicate them, and so you take like a hundred molecules, and you make you know, millions of them. Now you make them with mutations. So, of course, some of the mutant molecules, descendants of the first molecules that bound weaker to the cancer cells, some of them will bind more strongly, some of them will bind less strongly. Never mind, you take the pool of survivors from the first cycle of selection, you dump them back onto the liver cancer cells, and now the ones that bind tighter will be better selected. So then you wash the liver cancer cells, you throw away the stuff that doesn't bind. And somewhere around 11, 12, or 13 rounds of this process, binding, washing away doesn't bind, replication with mutations, reselecting by dumping them on, taking the survivors that bind a little bit better, washing away the ones that don't bind, reselecting with mutations getting mutants that bind better. 11, 12, 13 cycles is what's typical in the laboratory. You get molecules out of this evolving system that evo- bind very very well to cancer cells and you know now once you've got stuff that binds to cancer cells what can you do well, you can attach to them a uh, you know a chain a train that holds a lot of drugs and now the molecules that bind to the cancer cells drag along with them a bunch of dr- anti-cancer drugs and so once they bind to the cancer cells the liver cancer cells take them up and bring in like a trojan horse the uh, drugs that are attached to the thing that you evolved to bind to cancer cells and it kills the liver cancer pretty cool.
0: Yeah, no that's
1: that's interesting. So you, what stage are you at? You found things that again you could orchestrate that will bind to cancer cells but then what? Are they yeah, doing so nothing or what happened?
2: So then you got to go out and get a a partner who is able to do clinical studies. We've been talking to some people at the Lineberger Cancer Center at University of North Carolina. Then you got to raise money to do the uh, clinical trials, because, you know, doing this, you know, creating an artificial evolvable platform that will let you evolve in the laboratory stuffs that bind the cancer cells is a 10-year effort, but it's cheap compared to doing clinical trials. <laughs> so now we're back and forth to the National Institutes of Health. I'm not sure how familiar your listeners are to the uh, NIH process, but you send in the grant application, you say, hey, we want to do some clinical studies with this brand new kind of a cancer chemotherapy strategy. And they will be reviewed by peers who will say, oh, no, this is a new cancer strategy. We can't fund anything new because it's risky, right? So they'll reject it. So then you'll go back and do a little bit more work, and then you'll submit again. And we're somewhere in that process.
1: And in regards to life, potentially on Mars or other places, what what would tell you, though, that it's actually from... Mars or from Venus and not from Earth again and Uh, transfer
2: there? Good question. Well, we we have a blog called primordialscoop.org where we put up a bunch of posts on that very subject. And yeah, this is a problem. So you get to Mars and you discover something. Let's just say for sake of argument, it looks a lot like DNA. And so now you have to decide whether or not this is DNA that you brought with you from Earth. And... Uh, There's the alternative, more interesting, is it is the DNA that emerged by itself endogenously, indigenously on Mars. So one of the things, of course, you can do is sequence the DNA to determine the sequence of the A, T, Gs, and Cs in that DNA. And when you do that, you can very easily identify where it might have come from on Earth. So we have a relatively good survey of the molecules that the DNA molecules that are found in the life that we know of. And so, yeah, so, it, you know, if it, then there's a big tree, uh, so-called universal tree of life, universal is not quite the right word here because it really has only to do with life on Earth. But never the mind, if the sequence that we find on Mars is fits within the tree, it's something we brought with us. And especially if it fits within the primate tree or in within the tree of some of the bacteria that we know live in primate colons, it's something we brought with us. If, however, it does not fit into that tree, or if it has a different basic structure, that is, if some of the letters in the DNA alphabet have been, are different, or if uh, some other feature of the molecules are different, then, then no, it really didn't come with us.
1: So, I mean, so far, had there been a lot of samples gathered, you know, I know on the moon, I guess the astronauts, they, you know, they left their, uh, their poop on there for like 50 some odd years, but, um, you know, Mars, no one's been to, no human has been there, but, have a lot of samples been taken, let's say, on the moon and Mars? Venus, I know, is even harder to get to. As yeah. Have been able to, yeah.
2: to even make any attempts to see? Yeah, that's a problem. Well, we you can buy Mars this afternoon on eBay, and some of what you buy on eBay is actually from Mars. So, right, so people went to Antarctica, for example, and if you see a rock on the top of a glacier it likely fell there. And so people have collected it, especially in these dry valleys, large numbers of meteorites. Uh, same with the Sahara Desert. So there is, uh, if a rock is on the top of a sand dune, it likely fell there. And there's a whole bunch of people who wander around the Sahara looking for these things and then selling them to mineral dealers. But yeah, so uh, most of them, of course, are from asteroids. Most of them are not from Mars, or, or very few of them are from Venus. In fact, I don't think we have an authentic sample of Venus yet. But there's enough from Mars. And you know they're from Mars for interesting reasons. For example, the Allen Hill meteorite from Mars was the one that had this big discussion in, in 2000, what, next year, I'm sorry, it was 1996, where, where little structures in it that maybe looked like cells. But we knew that was from Mars because. In the rock was bits and pieces of shot glass that contained gas bubbles that were sampling the Mars atmosphere. So we know the composition of the Earth atmosphere. We know the composition of the Mars atmosphere. And these, this gas in these bubbles was the composition of Mars. And so this is the so called Allen Hills meteorite. And um, it's actually, it was collected. By governmental agencies, so it's not, you cannot buy it on eBay. But, you know, I have a piece of what's called Black Beauty. It's a piece of the Martian, what they called the regolith. It's actually basaltic rock. It's was ejected when something hit Mars fast enough to knock some Martian rocks loose. They achieved escape velocity from Mars. They wandered around the solar system for a while, and then they landed in the Sahara Desert, and then Somebody with a camel picked it up and, and they distributed it to various people. So we had a, have a donor named Bob Bruner, who works at the uh, Denver Museum of Natural History, who helped us acquire this piece. And so now we have actual samples of Mars that we can do experiments with to understand, for example, what rocks were there, when they were there, what likelihood was that these rocks would have helped life get started. We know that certain elements in the periodic table are important for that. So boron is one of them. Carbon, of course, is one of them. So we know from these kinds of samples of Mars, Mars contains boron and in fact contains pretty much all of the uh, ingredients that we have on life on earth and in fact if i were doing a visual broadcast i would show up this piece of rock that everett gibson sent me where they have actually this is now one again one of these samples that was knocked out of mars and came to earth where he's found in the sample carbon nitrogen oxygen all the elements that we might expect in a biological system sitting here in our hand now the question always there is now how do you know that the stuff that came from mars to earth and then sat around in antarctica or sat around on a camel backpack for a while is not contaminated by earth stuff and that's always these problems that we have to address when we're examining the samples but we have no samples returned from mars by human activity of course we have a number of them from the moon by human activity but also you know that you can also go find meteorites that are knocked out of the moon right so things have hit the moon ejected rock and actually a large fraction of those end up on earth
1: in terms of the uh, the origin of life. How many times do you think life began, and if <laughs> only once, why once? Why not know? Well, why it, life begin anew now.
2: The four most important words the science are "I do not know," which is perhaps the appropriate four words right this instant. Look, I mean, there's a couple people have people think about this, and and the, the the idea, of course, if life emerges once, right, it then is if it gains and what, what we mean by that is a chemical system has gained access to. Darwinian evolution. And so it's emerging from organic material, that is carbon-containing material, reduced nitrogen-containing material, a little bit of sulfur, a little bit of phosphorus. And there's a relatively good model for how that would have happened now. So the model relies on the surface of the earth being full of rocks that are possibly oxidized. That is, you have sulfur dioxide, not hydrogen sulfide. Or you have borate as boron with, uh, with three oxygen atoms on it, not reduced boron. You have phosphate, silicate. These are all oxidized species. But then the RNA was formed in a prebiotic chemical process where a lot of the chemicals were coming out of a reduced atmosphere that was made reduced by an impact. So something hit the earth roughly the size of the Modern day asteroid series. It had an iron core, it shattered, it reduced the atmosphere, and that got chemistry going. So that dumps organic material onto the surface. Now, initially, you don't have Darwinian evolution of that stuff, right? That stuff is just reacting as it intrinsically reacts as chemicals with heat and volcanic rocks and borate minerals and a few other things that are going into it. And a lot of that's been reproduced or modeled in the laboratory. But then at some point, let's just say, the system grabs a hold or gains access to Darwinian evolution. Now the argument is it would go around scarfing up all of the available material. So the opportunity for a second life form to emerge after the first one, it would have to be in competition with the first one. And of course, since the second form by definition is late to the table with Darwinian evolution, it has much less to eat. That's the story. Now, of course, it could be geographically isolated, right? I mean, you could have well,
1: not, not only that, if, if evolution takes millions of years, there's millions of years for competitors to arise.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And
1: why would the one organism be so successful that it covers the whole planet? Yeah. So.
2: Well, now that's a very good question. We, we do know that all of the life that we know of on Earth is related by common ancestry. But you have to be careful with that statement because that's the life that we know because that's the life that we know how to look for it. What does that mean? Well, that's the life that looks like us at the chemical level. I don't know if you, you saw in Science Magazine about two months ago, we actually have, well, Philippe Marlier, some people in Shanghai, University of Illinois, actually discovered viruses living on Earth infecting bacteria that use not G-A-C-T, but rather G-amino-A-C-T in their DNA. That is, those viruses use a different kind of DNA than you and I and that means that it is difficult to find them because the way we usually look for life on earth if on a swamp or in a hot spring or even in your large intestine, we usually look for life on earth by doing what's called the polymerase chain reaction where we make many, many copies of the DNA that's in that sample. But of course, we're making copies of the DNA that is in that sample using enzymes that copy GACT DNA, natural DNA, DNA that we know about. And so we're very likely to miss the DNA that we don't know about. But never mind. Okay. All the life that we know of on Earth is descended from a common ancestor. That's about three billion years ago. But you know, before then, wide open. You can have you can have multiple origins, right? You can have then Displacements uh, of uh, one system by another, and so the real question you have is not really going all the way back to origins, but three billion years ago, which you know is still a billion years short of origins, but it's about a billion years ago, some guy figured out how to do it better than everybody else and took over the planet and it 's a very interesting question as to why this guy is and by the way it's clear that you know making proteins was a big advance. And so all the machines, it's called the ribosome, is the machine that makes proteins in your body. All of the ribosomes of everything we know are all related by common ancestry. But for a variety of reasons, we actually know that the common ancestor of us all took over before they invented the ribosome. And so uh, it's a it's a very interesting question as to why you are the descendant. It's sort of like going to Australia, now that we're mentioning Australia, right? If you go to Australia, you actually do see a second origin of a sort, right? You see marsupials occupying all of the ecological niches that you can find mammals occupying, say, in Africa. So you have marsupial carnivores, the Tasmanian devil, you know, marsupial herbivores and so on. And so it is almost as if geographically isolation, geographical isolation, prevented you from losing the record of multiple origins. Well, here it's the origin of mammalness, it's not the origin of life, so maybe it's a little less interesting. But we do know in South America, for example, South America was also isolated for the longest time. placental animals developed in the northern hemisphere. At some point, about 5 million years ago, Panama sailed in by continental drift, connected North and South America. And what happened? Well, all the placentals went into South America and basically ate everybody. The opossum trudged North and managed to survive. But for the most part, you're looking at these geographical isolates, which can preserve very, very ancient diverging species and uh, that may be what would have happened on Earth. But again, until we're sure that there's not a shadow biosphere, that's a term from Carol Cleland, this idea that there's life under our feet that we don't know about because we don't know how to look for it. It's sort of like when von Leuvenhoek invented a microscope, right? What's the first thing he did? We discovered a shadow biosphere. He wasn't looking at the biosphere before with a microscope, so he had missed all of the amoeba and the algae and the single cell stuff that and so there's a huge shadow biosphere out there and to some extent archaea are a shadow biosphere as well archaea bacteria are a branch of single cell organisms on earth that diverged quite a long time ago from the bacteria that you know about your readers might be familiar with like any e. coli but uh but yeah so so it's possible but not in the last three billion years it seems that the guy who was in charge at three billion years ago He or she and their descendants pretty much were able to outcompete anything else that's going on. And by the way, after oxygen gets emerged, uh, produced, I mean, once you get photosynthesis going, about two and a half.
1: There's not just one species on Earth. There's millions and millions and millions of different kingdoms and phylums and all that. So competition does not seem to uh, exclusively keep one organism without any others. Why would competition do that? I mean, it doesn't do it now.
2: Well, it does. I mean, so, you know, I don't know whether you've been to the Black Hills, but you go 40 million years ago, go to what's called the late Eocene. The temperature, by the way, is about nine degrees warmer than it is today. Life is flourishing. And the number one species of organism is called the parasodactyls. Your listeners know what a parasodactyl is, but it's a horse or a rhinoceros or a taper. And I can give you in three words the some total of parasodactyls that are now surviving on earth of course rhinoceros and pterodactyl and uh, there were 250 species of related to this uh, mammal order as the biologists call it in the eocene 40 45 million years ago there was one artiodactyl that's a cloven hoof animal that is going to chew his cud in the now by the way Arteodactyls are everywhere. They are the sheeps. They're the goats. They're the uh, deer. There is, of course, the pigs, the, the camels, we've already mentioned. There are some 200 species of artiodactyls, And just within 40 million years, 200 species related to the horse went down to three, whereas one species related to the ox or the cow went to 200 species. And you're looking at a huge, huge, huge displacement of one grass-eating herbivore, large herbivore mammal um, being displaced by another. Now, why? Well, part of the reason is that the Eocene, as I mentioned, is nine degrees warmer um, than today. This is not, by any stretch of the imagination, the hottest year on history. But what happened in the Oligocene, and it's associated with... Continental drift, the formation of the Himalayan mountains, as well as eventually the closing of Panama, is the planet started to cool, and the temperature went down and down and down, and the grasslands opened up, and the uh, ice ages eventually is the product of this. Where the Earth today is has ice ages got it's got sea level ice it's something that's very unusual in the history of Earth, but because uh ruminants, the artiodactyls, the defendant from descendant from the one guy, invented ruminant digestion. They were able to eat grass and process food more efficiently as the climate changed, causing their food supply to to change as well. So you're looking at uh, and by the way, don't even don't even get me started with primates. I mean, you 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 and your kind were everywhere. <laughs> you You were living in Northern Europe, you were living in Siberia, you were living of course, you know all around the planet as a nice primate, but you made the mistake of getting rid of your vitamin C gene, and so you were relying on these tasty fruits that have a lot of vitamin C for your nutrition so this global cooling that that took place from forty million years ago to the ice ages is basically destroyed primates. All around the world, and they retreated down to a very narrow bandwidth. You know, in, of course, South America, Amazon, Africa, of course, and Indonesia. There's still primates that survive. And the only reason why you've managed to survive is because you got, you know, culture. You uh, learned how to uh, cook and get fire and do all these other sorts of things that let you escape from the mid latitudes to which you had been forced to retreat by climate change. You, you are not may be aware of the uh, extinctions that are going on all around you but but by definition if i'm to eat
1: plants animals whatever it is that means there's other creatures that, that are living yep. alongside me i may be competitive to let's say other humans or other monkeys or certain animals but not to all life that, that's correct so,
2: well i mean and of course you, you, know what, you know
1: i'm not gonna outcompete every mushroom on earth or every plant on earth it never right. happens so
2: well, you're doing pretty well now, by the way. <laughs> but sure, you're a symbiont, right? You have more bacterial cells live in you than human cells. Of course, the bacterial cells are smaller. But but yes, I mean, you uh, have managed to survive in competition with lots and lots of species, so much so that you're actually driving a large number of them to extinction these days yourself, but uh, nothing personal. But yes, uh, it's, it's just interesting, though, in an ecological niche there will be competition. So if you were to take the marsupial carnivores, for example, and put them in competition with the placental carnivores, what will happen? Now, it's anybody's guess.
1: But if we're talking about the origin of life, there is no one living thing that out, that competes against every other living thing. So why? Well, you know, Are,
2: you, are get, you a betting man? I mean, so is, yeah. if yeah. So the, it's really a matter of bets, placing your bets in statistics. And this is where you get to the I do not know line, right? If, of course, life, if, if you take the organics raining out of a post-impact atmosphere falling on oxidized rocks, okay, if life emerges in that envi- environment that's worldwide, now one of your problems is, is a big fight as to how much of Earth was not covered by a global ocean. So the fear is now if you have a global ocean, the organics that rain out of this post-impact atmosphere get diluted uselessly into a global ocean. This is one of the arguments for why life would have been more likely to start on Mars than on Earth is Mars always had dry land on it. And there's a big question as to whether Earth had dry land on it at any time that's relevant to this discussion. But yeah, I mean, let's say you have enough dry land, so you have three or four places all around the globe, you know, they're not necessarily talking to each other. If life originated each one of those places, that's because you're a betting man who thinks that, Hey, life is has a high probability of emerging in those circumstances. And so now you very quickly can imagine a scenario where two Darwinian systems could of independent origin could come into competition with each other. And uh, we have no idea before 3 billion years or so what happened. What we do know is that after 3 billion years, if there was more than one form of life, 3 billion years ago, it has taken over the planet and either eaten everybody else who was there or has driven everybody else who was there into hiding such that we don't know about them yet. But yeah. You I mean you're right. I mean you could you could have multiple origins and multiple locations and you know one of the things that you would do if I were in the business I would become a symbiont like I'm doing with the bacteria in my intestine and we know that that happened right the chloroplast in a plant cell is a combination of two organisms it's a blue green algae that went to live inside of a you know a cell which was uh, able to do have sex basically so uh, blue-green algae just divide. They don't have sex. It turns out that having sex is a more f- uh, efficient way of reproducing and evolving. And so the blue-green algae went to live inside of an organism that could have cel- sex, and it made the modern plant. Uh, your mitochondria, right? You're, you're, you're a eukaryote. You've got a nice nucleus in cells. They have, hold the DNA, but you your energy from burning oxygen comes from bacteria that were able to burn oxygen and get energy out of burning oxygen and they went to live inside of one of your eukaryotic cells so you yourself are a hybrid of multiple organisms so that's another way in which multiple organisms uh, could have uh, gotten together in early earth but we got to be careful here i mean if the chemistry is too different you, you can't i mean you can't do that right vulcan i mean spock And his mother and father are Vulcan and human, or human and Vulcan. Um, Somehow they managed in the fictional world to get together and produce a Spock, who apparently has love interests in Uhura at some point. But none of that is possible unless there's a huge degree of chemical similarity between the genetics of those two species. (laughs) And of course, (laughs) there was a Star Trek Next Generation episode where they tried to explain why all aliens in the cosmos look like Hollywood actors with prostheses. But, you know, I mean, you're in this environment. There was independent lines of uh, evolution. We know roughly We know roughly when you got together with your mitochondria. We know roughly the temperature you were living when that happened. It was about 47 degrees.
1: Yeah, I guess I guess the weird thing is, you know, again, in the ocean now, why isn't life uh, coming into existence, for instance? Or in other spots, you know?
2: Did I neglect to mention the four most important words in science? Uh, yeah, the story is twofold. First, oxygen tends to toast organic molecules before they can do interesting stuff. And the second story is that you, is that you already have a layers of biological systems which will eat anything. So, you know, you, if you go into the ocean, even uh, no, even in the deep sea, there are, there's a hierarchy of organisms that will eat whatever is falling in from the surface. Uh, The sun is the productive element up at the surface. Now, there's also deep sea thermal vents, which are producing their own ecosphere from below. But the argument would be that if you had any new stuff forming anywhere in that ocean, it would be eaten. That's the story.
1: Okay. Very good. Uh we're close to that of time. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? I know we only covered a part of it, but where can they go?
2: Well, primordialscoop.org, that's sort of a play on primordial soup, is uh, a great place to go. There's blogs we put up, which keeps track of the stuff that we do. Again, we're sort of, you know, laissez faire, whatever interests us, we'll write. Something. And, uh, but you can find, you know, our latest thoughts on how you let, look for life on Mars, how you would tell whether life on Mars is or is not related to us, how life originated, this kind of thing.
1: Okay. Well, very good. Well, Steve, thank you for coming. And, uh, you know, it's my pleasure. There's not, uh, there's not new Star Treks that are of any quality to keep us interested. It seems like but the other ones are good. Thank you very much.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.